Liv Winter describes herself as a queer artist, educator, activist and writer from South London. She was formerly artist-in-residence at the Tate Britain and Tate Modern, before resigning over complaints about the lack of diversity at the Tate. She uses an anarchic exploration of language, live performance and text-based practice to create unique forms of storytelling and to initiate discussions around class, sexuality and gender. Though her work is socially and politically demanding, it demonstrates a fluidity which allows her to move from art institutions to youth clubs, community centres and protests. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is Your London Legacy. Well, good morning, everybody. <laughs> Welcome, Liv. Win- is it winter? Winter, winter yeah. Winter, W-Y-N-T-E-R, winter. Welcome to Liv. Thank you very much for joining us on uh, your London Legacy podcast. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. We're here in uh, not-so-sunny downtown Deptford. Yeah, pretty grey today, isn't it's it? It's a pretty grey day. Uh, having It's been pretty warm recently, but we're back to, back to greyness, I'm afraid, <laughs> in Deptford. So let me just briefly introduce Liv for those who are uninitiated. Liv is a described, I think described yourself, it's taken off your your website, as a queer artist, educator, activist and writer from South London who uses an anarchic, that's a good word. Yeah. What does anarchic mean? Anarchic, like with anarchy. With anarchy. Yeah. Okay. So I better be careful what I say here. (laughs) An anarchic exploration of language, live performance and text-based practice to create unique forms of storytelling and to initiate discussion around class, sexuality and gender. That's a hell of a... Yeah, that's my um, by the book art. That's your full title, <laughs> your, your full description. Yeah, that's my arts council description. Okay, <laughs> that's the right. buzzword one to get the. And is that what you live by? Those. Yeah, those definitions? I guess so. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of writing short sentences about what you do seems to be a big part of being an artist now. <laughs> yes, it's very difficult to describe what what a person is, isn't it, and what you yeah, do? Yeah, definitely. And because my practice is text based, trying to write a text about a text is a really like strange thing to do okay often when i'm like trying to do grants or applying for stuff the word word count that i have to describe the artwork in is the same amount of words as the artwork right, <laughs> i just okay. want to send the artwork and be like well this is the piece <laughs> so this rep- the artwork actually is you rather than yeah. the description of the artwork yeah which defeats the object really exactly, doesn't it yeah, yeah it's a bit frustrating so you had a fairly interesting year so far this year because you were up until quite recently artist in residence at the Tate. Is that the, the Tate Britain? Tate and, Britain and Modern, and yeah, the on the education programme there. Uh-huh. You're not there anymore. I'm not, And no. we'll come on to that shortly. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll keep that back. We'll do a big reveal on that shortly. But that was a fairly public sort of parting of the ways between you and the Tate. Absolutely. Um, for pretty good reasons, by, by my judgment, having had a look at... Uh, your letter of public letter of resignation, I guess, I guess it was um, fairly hard hitting. So your life really is in the arts, shall mm-hmm. we say, but also in activism, gender related activism and, and yeah. uh, abuse as well, I would say. How did you get into that? I mean, what was it? Let's talk a bit about your background first. So, I mean, you were born in 1992. So that makes yeah. you, what, 20, 26. 26. It was my birthday two weeks ago. Oh, was it? Many, many happy yeah, returns. Did, so you, do so, did yeah. you do something nice for your birthday? Um, I always have a 10-day party. 10-day party. Okay. <laughs> right. So you're still coming through. So that, I'm still in recovery. <laughs> okay. Um, but it, it's, it was really nice. Yeah. I guess the last year, last couple of years have been pretty wild. I did an art foundation in B6, which is a school in Hackney, uh-huh. which is like... Like pretty rough and very like go through a metal detector to get into class and stuff <laughs> so that was pretty fun um did a foundation there which I, I didn't pass but managed to kind of weasel my way on onto an interview for goldsmiths uni and i didn't really have any very good artwork but i think i was quite charming so i got an unconditional offer from there 
and then went to Goldsmiths to do a fine art degree. Spent two years making really, really awful, awful artwork and just working like 60 hours a week in a in a bar to sustain it and pay my rent. And then come third year, I just had a light bulb moment where I started writing instead of like trying to make like what I considered like art art. I was like, I, couldn't, I can't paint or draw or anything like that. I'm not a sculptor. So what, what was the art you were doing at, at college? Before I was making text, I wanted to be Tracy Emin for a really long time. Okay. Because she just seemed like really rage raging and I was into that. And I mean, obviously her work, a lot of her work's text-based. So I was trying to kind of emulate that. Not ever really doing very well at it, but trying to. And then, yeah, third year I kind of decided actually I'll just get rid of the material and I'll just write and read and perform. And that was a really like big turning point for me. And then it kind of all just took off from there really. But you stayed. You stayed the course. You didn't. You didn't. I quit finished the course. my course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Oh uh, yeah, it was the first time I'd got a good grade. Actually, my mum was. My mum was very happy. <laughs> good. Good. Well, probably made yourself, you know, pleased and proud as well. I guess. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. Um, I've always had really bad grades, so getting a first was nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, join the club. I got pretty rubbish grades at school as well. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty demoralising, really, isn't yeah. it? Especially when your mates are doing. You know, yeah, when everyone's doing wicked well. at stuff, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you left and then you went into, you, you pursued a different avenue in, in art. What, we say text-based. So what, is, what do you mean by that? Just kind of like live performance. So at that time I was mainly doing spoken word poetry. I did a video called Don't Flop. I did a rap battle competition um, where I did it's kind of exactly what you'd imagine, like very eight mile, very cringe. And I was basically at that time, I was trying to think about how to take feminist artworks into non-feminist spaces. So Don't Flop was something I watched at school and it's all boys and it's just like your mum this and your girlfriend that. And I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. So I went and did a battle there against a guy called Pedro um, and, and it went viral. I think it had 150,000 views in like the first few months. And that picked up quite a lot of traction. So then I was doing spoken word for a bit, but I found it. Good spoken word's amazing and bad spoken word is really unbearable to sit through. And like, there's not a lot of critical conversation or there wasn't when I was hanging out in that scene. I didn't feel like there was a lot of critical chat and I need a lot of critical conversation. So yeah, I guess after that, I was branching into other text-based stuff. So at, at the moment, I'm thinking about writing ra a radio play. I've been working on monologues. But spoken word was definitely the like first step into a more live-based practice. So wh where were you performing typically? Kind of all around, everywhere. Loads of like, lots of pubs and um, bars and like queer venues. Lots of... Um, group art shows they always need something exciting yeah. for these like open mic nights or you just open mic nights all the time yeah there was like a f there was a couple of really good nights around back in the day there was one called silence found a tongue that was in waterloo that i absolutely loved and they they do podcasts now they're really good um and another one called the a and the e that was in peckham that was really cool too but i i'm not very involved with it at the moment i must say i performed recently actually with one of my best friends travis alabanza who's a poet we went to a poetry night in Vogue Fabrics and it was amazing and I was really like re-inspired from it and felt a bit excited again. But I haven't written a poem in a very long time. <laughs> okay. So how did you then move from there? I mean, how many years ago was that you were doing that? Was that up until quite recently? I guess maybe I stopped doing poetry like two years ago. And then I would say, not through choice, but I think I had about a year where I didn't really make anything and I wasn't feeling very fab. And like, I'm not, I'm not one of those kind of romantic, suffering artists like if i'm miserable i can't make any work and if right. i try it's awful so you can't just sit there and wait for something to happen yeah i'm to, not like, inspired yeah i've got to be not even inspired but i've got to have my best brain to kind of make 
work. But that was at the time that I'd applied for the Tate. So that when I got the Tate job, I hadn't made any art for a year. And I was like, oh, no, this is a disaster. The dream job's come along and I've forgotten how to be an artist. But um, after I got the job, I think it gave me a bit of confidence and I started making some work sure. again. So when did this opportunity at the Tate ar- arise? How did that come um, about? Well, you have to be nominated to apply and then you do an application, go for your interview. And then they called me literally the, the day after my interview and were like, you've got the job. We're working out who else has got it with you, which was really nice. It really was the dream job. The job, the role was basically working with young people um, in the gallery, responding to artworks and stuff and creating new works together, which is like my dream. But yeah, it didn't end up very idyllic. <laughs> so it was a very hands-on thing. So it was, it was educational yeah. for, for young kids coming what, on school trips? and Yeah, coming on school trips. I worked with a lot of uh, young people from pupil referral units. Yeah, just trying to engage them with artwork, trying to trying to make people feel comfortable in a gallery space. It's like quite a big battle, really. Because somewhere like the Tate is such a huge space and you can feel really lost. It's a very cold place, yeah. really, to wander around, even as even as a visitor. You, you yeah, it's, re- it's really intimidating. And if, if you're from a background where art hasn't been something you grow up around, then in your head, it's just stuff that's worth millions of pounds that you can't really go near. And like, that was definitely my feelings about art growing up. And so my role was kind of trying to make young people not feel like that and feel like uh, like all my workshops involved like rolling around on the floor, like we'd go up and down the escalators with football scarves and just like make lots of noise. Sounds like fun. It was really fun. I really, really enjoy working with young people and working with young people and art is like the dream really. So how how long were you there for? I think I lasted maybe five months. Five months. Before it all kicked off. Okay. So before it kicked off, yeah. did you have a set? I mean, let's go back to the application. What were you told at the, at the outset what your role would be in terms of cohesiveness and celebration of diversity? Yeah, I mean, it was very like the, t- the team that I work for are, are wicked and they're really dedicated to making sure that they work in a representational way. But obviously, when you're working with representation inside an institution, you're only a millimeter away from tokenism at any point. So... There was definitely like a vibe of like, let's get together these kind of like black, brown, queer bodies, bring them into this space that's not really for them, ask them to do the most radical, difficult thing they can do and see what happens. And obviously it was never going to really go (laughs) well. Like it's nice that we have a, we had a team that supported us, but that team is one team in a thousand teams of an institution. So I don't really think that they had the support network they needed to support four radical artists inside that space. You felt as an individual, perhaps, that you weren't getting the support you deserved and in the bigger picture, they weren't being as diverse as perhaps they ought to have been and and should be under their, I don't know if it's their constitution. I guess I feel like as an individual, people want to work with me because they see me doing really like radical stuff. But then they invite me into their house and then when I do it there they're like oh we didn't realize you were going to do that here you didn't realize you're quite that radical. yeah <laughs> they're like wow we love that thing you did where you like protested this thing and I'm like yeah cool and then I get invited in and I'm like okay this needs to change I'm going to do something about this and they're like oh we didn't think that would happen but I think that's a class thing I think it's because people assume that I'm always going to feel like I'm lucky to be somewhere because I grew up in a family where I was told I was never going to go uni and I wasn't going to be able to be an artist and creative who told you that well my parents it wasn't it wasn't a viable option to go to uni it wasn't a thing it was like what rich kids did so it was rare that we went uni so they actually told you it's something you can't aspire to or you just you just felt it 
sort of innately in your no, upbringing? No, my dad was very much like, you won't go to uni. It's not going to happen. We couldn't, we couldn't support you for it. We wouldn't have a penny to give you and you need financial support. So it was like, don't think about it kind of thing. Did you think about it? I mean, it, was it something you wanted to do, do you think, when you look back? I don't think I... I, I, wanted, I wanted to go to Goldsmiths from when I was quite young because I really liked the YBAs and I thought they were really punk and I liked punks and I had an image of Goldsmiths in my head that it would be full of like working... I thought it would be like the 90s and obviously it's not at all remotely like that right. at all, but that was what I wanted. And I wanted to go to Goldsmiths from when I was quite young. And so by the time I got to like my foundation, which I hated and my A-levels, which I hated, it was just a mission to get to Goldsmiths. So I was just kind of like checking the boxes until I got to uni. But I didn't want to go to uni till I was after my GCSEs. I was like, yeah, actually, because I didn't like school, but Goldsmiths is set up in a different way. So Goldsmiths is like, or at least when I was there, you pick your modules that you take, you you decide you're completely autonomous as a person. What do you want to learn? Where do you want to, where do you want your studio? Who do you want to be your tutor? And so you get out whatever you want from it. So you don't have to sit through a hundred boring lectures about something you don't care about. You go to the stuff you really care about and you thrive off of it, which for someone like me, or I guess quite a lot of people that hated school, that's quite a radical why, way why, to work. Why did you hate school? Was it just the, the institution of it, as you say, having to sit through classes and or were you, did you feel you're a bit of an outsider I think um I was I was a very bright I was a classic classic story of like very intelligent troubled child so I was like super smart and could like smash an exam if I needed to but got very bored a lot I like couldn't really concentrate was into drugs very young had older boyfriends didn't want to go to school really so a typical sort of rebellious teenager just standard nearly. boring teenager right. yeah but like also very very depressed and also just like my mum my mum says the hardest thing was that a lot of arguments I had with teachers I would be right about but I'd go about it in such a annoying bratty way well like, I used to get sent home because my uniform was like provocative or something I remember being like in year eight and having long socks on and looking quite looking older than I was and being sent home because a male tutor had said that it was too sexual and me kicking off and being like that's because of the porn you watch that's not my fault <laughs> like I'm 13 years old and I've got long socks on it's not my fault if you fancy me like right. that's your problem you've probably been watching too many Britney Spears uh... exactly and my mum would be like you're right but you've said it in that way yeah. and now you have to come home and be yeah. like suspended no. for a week yeah you gotta know your place exactly so you always uniform how I looked you know how I sound all that all the stuff that teachers hate so you didn't care too much for authority, even in those days, by the sound no, of it? No, I'm not a big authority no. fan. <laughs> no, I, I, I can guess. Yeah. So you didn't leave school early, you saw school? No, I, I saw it through, You yeah. saw it through. I left, I had two A-levels when I left, it was pretty good. Okay, I got three, but they were rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I, was, I had a reunion with my old schoolmates last night, who I hadn't, some of them I hadn't seen for 25, 30 years. Wow. Yeah, and it's very interesting to see. Who's up to what? Who's up to what? It's just, it's just incredible. Yeah. You say, Where's this one? Oh, he's not around anymore. You know, Ooh. what's this one doing? Oh, he's now in America. This one's. They're just everyone. Their life paths just take them in different journeys, and yeah. it's really fascinating to see. And obviously, I mean, you're you're still young. Yeah. You got you got your whole life journey ahead of you. I have, but yeah. you've you've created quite a lot of stir this year. So let's go back to the Tate. So you got what potentially was sounding like a dream job. Yeah, absolutely. With a nice little. Regular stream of income yeah, as well, I would imagine, being ever, an artist. Like, serious paycheck. Uh-huh. So what happened? What went wrong? Yeah, so basically what kind of happened was I read an article in a newspaper that was about Maria Bauschel, who was a 
who is one of the directors of the Tate. And she was very celebrated when she got the role because she's kind of like a working class, done well woman who I think is very much assimilated to being very rich now. But she was supposed to be a bit of a possibility model, I think, for a lot of people. And she's in the newspaper. She was being asked about sexual harassment because there'd been some rumors of sexual harassment at the Tate. So she was being asked about that. And she was saying, well, I think the direct quote is something like, no, I've never experienced sexual harassment. That wouldn't happen to me. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen to strong women. Something like that. I think I'm just reading from the quote yeah. here. It says I, I personally have never suffered any such issues. Talking of sexual harassment and violence, she said. Uh, then I wouldn't. I was raised to be a confident woman who, when I encountered harassment, would say, "Please don't," or something rather more direct. Yeah, which is just trash, really, isn't it? What an awful, ridiculous thing to say. So, and I I was particularly wounded with it because I'm a survivor of domestic violence and I make pretty much all of my work about that. And the work that I make, I was making as part of Tate. And so here's this woman profiting off of the abuse that I've suffered in the newspaper, talking about how it doesn't happen to strong people. And so I wanted to have a conversation with her and, and get to the bottom of that. She'd also made some racist comments about fried chicken in another context and so she just basically was slipping up about stuff to do with politics and I understand that people were learning and like we need to give people space to come to terms with these concepts but maybe you need to know them if you're the director of the UK's largest cultural institution like you probably do need to know a bit about race and gender (laughs) like that is what most artwork is about so anyway she called a public meeting at Tate Modern at Tate Britain which I wasn't allowed to go to at first found my way in turned up very was just very firm and was like this is an outrageous way to speak and i want there to be accountability this for was this. you speaking publicly or if one to publicly one with her? to maria so she kind of said that if any staff wanted to speak to her about the comments they could go to this meeting and she just wouldn't take any accountability she just was like it was taken out of context that isn't really what i said and i've i've dealt with enough journalists to know how something can be manipulated and how it can't and like it's just it's a direct quote like there's no way for that to be read in any other context so that was really frustrating for me um she was quite hostile and it sounds like I went to the one at the modern and it sounds like the one at the Britain was the same and so then I was just wrestling with it for ages where I was like am I really have I sold my soul here have I been lured into a total red herring of success of success because the Tate was the first thing maybe that my family understood as success in the art world because if I tell them I've got a residency at Wysing that doesn't mean anything to them but if I go I've got a job at the Tate sure it's that's huge they understand that you know like that's that's a real pride moment and I was like oh thinking about it for ages I was like what do I do I was thinking about can I do some direct action inside working in this role and then I was like that doesn't feel right so then I started thinking about resigning and it would only it only seemed relevant to do if it was incredibly public and created a very big explosion of dialogue in the gallery. So I worked with um, some friends who who we do press stuff with and kind of we got the guarantee that it would be in The Guardian. We teamed it up on we made it planned it so it would happen on International Women's Day. And then the story just blew up, really. And it it was great. It created a huge amount of dialogue. There was so much conversation that happened at Tate. So many people messaging me in solidarity from, like, office workers to cleaners to artists. I'm sure lots of people felt, like, other ways about it. Which which is all fantastic. And you you wrote this. We've got the full, I believe this is pretty much the full transcript of your resignation letter here, which people can find online on your website if they want to see see the full. And it's extremely, you know, powerful and hard-hitting. 
some might say, and I'm not necessarily one of those, some might say, if you've got a, a feeling in your mind that this lady was wrong and that she's representing the institution, you know, the, the views, because she is the face of the, mm. the organisation, would it not have been better to fight, fight the good fight from within the organisation? I just don't think that that's always um, a viable option. I think sometimes when you're working with an institution, I mean, I kind of say it in the letter, like having been on both sides of that wall now, having been someone who's organized protests against the Tay and, and then afterward worked for the Tay, I, I, can see, I can see the difference of, of how things work. I was making complaints about stuff whilst I worked inside the institution and being told this might take five years to change because there's so many people that have to tick a box. But when I was outside protesting, getting in the news, talking about their showcasing Carl Andre's work, the change that, that happened was almost instant because you need both. You need pressure from inside and outside and yeah. I'm much more useful outside right. than I am in. So are you pleased with with the change that is now happening within the Tate and, you know, as a result of the action you've taken? I'm very pleased with the action I've taken. And I know that there is still, I know that the Tate are still concerned about what other plans I have and what things I'm going to be getting up to. That's very clear from how they communicate with me. And that's good. I want them to feel nervous. I want them to feel uncomfortable. They've, they've really, really done badly by a lot of artists and they've really manipulated and objectified loads of people that I know. Mm. And I think they just thought none of us would ever speak to each other <laughs> mm. and they'd get away with it forever. And now I still wonder, and again, I'm not, this is not necessarily my view. I just, I just wonder if, had you stayed within the organization? But done what? I was only there for nine months. That's all my job was. Yeah. But then what? Has someone replaced your position? Yeah, it's rolling. It changes every, every year. Yeah. And so you know every the person year, who's taken over. Yeah. So every yeah. year the previous artists nominate the next artist. Right. So I nominated, I, I just did a Facebook status. I was like, anyone who wants the job, it is a really nice job. Just let me know and I'll put you forward for it. I'm sure the next, in fact, the, ne the next four artists are all wicked. The artists I was working with were amazing. I don't dispute that it's a really great job. I just felt like I needed to do something to disrupt the system in a, mm. in a big way. Sure, I understand it, but that, that's, that's the nature of your, your personality. Yep. <laughs> that's, that, that's who you are and by the looks yeah. of it, it's who, who you are, always have been for you know, most of your life and who yeah. you probably will continue to be. I would imagine so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did you quit? You quit rather than was sacked I suppose oh yeah no I quit that was a big quit yeah quit which was quite embarrassing for them I guess well I mean what was the oh yeah like the blowback they got must have been pretty yeah they were well embarrassed they were getting absolutely hounded by journalists trying to get comments wouldn't say anything in fact Maria Bauschel still hasn't made a comment about it but you know I go I'm on a list now I get invited to the bougie party she's got to bump into me and you know try and be pleasant with me and I make it very clear that I'm not remotely interested in um having a cup of tea or hanging out like I'm still very much dedicated until I to fighting against the Tate until I feel like there's some justice for the wrongdoings that have happened there. Because mm. you also, I think, pointed out in your your resignation letter the makeup of the, the Tate in terms of the senior personnel there. Yeah, we're, we're not in the slightest bit representative. Absolutely of, of not. The community, well, particularly the London community. <laughs> yeah. as, a, as a whole. Exactly. It's it's just like it's all just lip service, like. You know, the most diverse members of any of these institutions are always the cleaners and the kitchen staff, you know? And it's like, I don't know. I just think it's a shame. And I also don't know whether we can ever fully dismantle and, and make good spaces like the Tate, but I think we have to at least try our hardest. I don't think you can really decolonize a museum, but it's worth trying, definitely. Why would you dismantle the Tate rather rather than embrace it and get, get more people involved from a wider cross-section of society. Because I think what we're embracing is, is a really violent history. There's so many artworks in the Tate that are made by murderers, rapists, 
and everything in between and because they're part of an of a history of art it's it's okay to show that and it's okay for those works to be it's not even that it's, they're being shown it's that they're being shown without context that's the thing that annoys me yeah i think so long as they were shown and people understood you know the, the context within which they they were created and why they're there as long as that's a broad cross-section is that not i don't know i don't really have all the answers no. you know but i i do feel like showing work that's made by do you know what I think about? I think about the fact that I learned about Carl Andre at school, who's a minimalist sculptor, and he has this piece that's a uh, hundred bricks on a floor. And it wasn't until and I and he's part of the GCSE curriculum that you do in year ten. So you I learned about him in year ten, or how old are you then? 14, 15? So then when I was in second year of uni, so what, twenty-two, only then did I realise that he'd that he may have murdered his wife by pushing her out of a window. And suddenly those bricks on the floor had a whole different meaning. That was one of the most sinister and threatening artworks I'd ever seen. And yet I'd been, been like, oh yeah, I like Carl Andre's work. You know what I mean? Mm. Like that, that really m- messed with me. I felt really, I felt like I'd been lied to. By... So you appreciated the artwork on, a, on the, if you like, the superficial level, but without understanding. I thought the artwork was funny. It mm. was a hundred bricks on the floor. I thought that was hilarious that someone could get away with, being like this is an artwork it was jokes to me but actually it's it's a really harrowing piece of work that is deeply sinister and you know I had to take kids around that work at Tate and risk libel to be like he's a murderer because he was acquitted so this was your find where is Anna Mendieta uh, where, where's Anna Mendieta which was yeah. his partner at the time yeah yeah and she was a Cuban lady yeah and he, he's was he alleged to have murdered? He her was alleged to. He was he was acquitted due to white privilege, basically. But yeah, that was a big campaign. That so we organised two protests against the Tate when they show when they opened the new wing and they had those bricks on show. It's just it's just um, people don't want to have difficult conversations, and there needs to be a huge amount of difficult conversations spoken about our museums and our galleries because so much of the work has not only been acquired in in, in a immoral or violent way but is made by immoral and violent people and then these are the same buildings that are like hey we're really radical and left-wing and like come and hear these queer artists and these black artists talk about their trauma and you can like get, do you, get do you think that. it's just pure tokenism to say look what we're doing look we're embracing everybody i think until the walls change i think until the permanent structures change it's very it's very good to you know I, I mean that's the money i live on is being wheeled in and out of various spaces and being asked to be cross about stuff but until the actual until the actual permanent collections really start to change and until it's not just like picasso all day every day every time they change the like paid exhibitions you know it's not it's also the tate you know the buildings like that they're free to get in but then in in the cafe there's like a box of pasta pesto that's like nine pounds and then you're like and i have so many memories of my mum trying to take me to cultural spaces when i was a kid and then being ashamed when we were there because you couldn't afford to like have a bottle of water you know what i mean like accessibility isn't just who is inside the building it's how do they feel when they're in there so that was the kind of point I was trying to make with Tate I was like it's very well to be like we open our doors to all these people but you don't treat us right when we're inside so you haven't made an accessible space you've just opened your door out of interest as I, I, I don't know the, the answer to this do the Tate monitor the people who come in and out the, the sort of the audience in terms of the cross-section and diversity of the, the people who come in and out so they can see who they're appealing to i'm not sure I, I know that there's obviously cross-section of staff but i wouldn't know about i would imagine they probably do most museums do most museums can tell you their age range and 
types of people that come through. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know <laughs> because so often, I mean, we said, my wife and I say this quite a lot when we go to, you know, the theatre or a show or whatever, we say, it's mostly white middle-class people yeah. here, here, here in the room, you know. So, yeah. You wonder why that is. Well, Tate's get... a funny one because there's a lot of older people who are like, you know, maybe like 50 and over, very like Tory vibes, who really have a total ownership of those gallery spaces to the point where they're completely comfortable to like shush groups of children or even to the point where they were completely comfortable telling me as a member of staff to be quiet um, whilst I was working. And that was a real surprise for me, the the level of entitlement some people have to these Even in the spaces. space that you were working in, yeah. specifically to educate children. Yeah. And I would be like, I work here. And they would be like, you're being disruptive. Like, well, I've got kids here for five minutes. You're only allowed to be in front of an artwork for 15 minutes and then you have to move on with a group. So I'd be like, we'll be here for 10 minutes. We're going to do some drawing. We're going to roll about on the floor. Like, it's fine. It was just really shocking. And also so much of it was sad because I would have these, be me me and a teacher, 15 kids who are from a school in Lewisham, most of them who are black, young kids, really freaked out by being in an art gallery. I've made them feel comfortable, hung out with them. And then there's these rich white women being really, really hostile to these young people. And I've, I was like, this is what I'm saying. I was like, I don't think that this institution is actually ready to do what it's trying to do. Because where are the support structures to look after those kids? Mm, but they've got to start somewhere, haven't they? They do. Um, but I, what, like, what, what happens to that kid who's told to shut up? Like, I, I, can't, I can't keep an eye on every single one of them. You don't get over that, I don't think. I have memories of being told to be quiet in, in spaces like that when I was young. And it really stayed with me. You know, it really makes you feel like you're this, you go in thinking this isn't for me. You get a bit comfortable and then you're reminded, no, this isn't for you. It's not, it's not a nice experience. Did you get good feedback from the kids? You know, Absolutely. Apart, apart from the ones who were told, shush. <laughs> I've got loads of good feedback and I've got connections with lots of the schools I worked with. I stayed in touch with loads of them. I absolutely loved it when a school would come in from South London and the moment they hear your voice, they're like, oh, Biss, you're from South. And I'm like, yes. And it's really nice. And it was just great. Like we just did so much fun stuff. I do. I miss it. I definitely miss it as a job. So have you managed to make up your income elsewhere? Or are you still... Well, I didn't really for a while. I was homeless for like three months afterwards because I, I was £1,200 a month that I lost. That, I mean, that was it really. But, you know, I've got a very good community around me in South London and a lot of people that supported what I was doing and would put me up. Um, I went through a breakup at the same time as well. Just thought I'd do it all at once. <laughs> Get it all, Get out, it all the out of the way. Yes, <laughs> cathartic experience, yeah. start afresh. Well, sometimes yeah. that's what you need. Sometimes. Exactly. And, you know, there was lots of stuff in my life that I was like, I don't know how I've got in this position where a lot of my morals seem to have gone out the window. Um, and I need to realign myself. And if I've got to live out a bag for a little while while I get it back together, that's fine. But stuff came, you know, the Tate thing was interesting. It was it was either going to ruin my whole career or be the start of a new career that was much, much more me. And I'm lucky that it was the latter. Like all the art spaces that got in touch with me after that were really nice and interested in supporting me as someone who was not going to be censored or... That's perfect, isn't you know, it? It's great. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. You must yeah. love that. So talk us through some of the things you've been working on. I mean, I, I was looking online and saw this um, piece you did called, how, was it called House Fire? House Fire, yeah. So House Fire was a monologue that I wrote. Actually, just as I got the Tate job, um, I went to the Tate to hang out and there's a piece called Blue by Derek Jarman, who's one of my favorite artists. And it's this huge blue screen and you lay on these blue beanbags in this dark room and it's just like slightly shifting colors of blue. And then a text over the top and you just lay there. And it's quite funny because it became, it's a, it's a really intense piece of work, but the, with the, quite a few of like the security guards and myself 
because it's dark, used to go have a nap there if you're really hungover. So it just became this kind of funny community space. Um, but I wrote House Fire in there. Um, Whilst you were in that space yeah, relaxing. Right. Yeah, just kind of chilling out and thinking about things. And House Fire is basically a story, an allegory about a woman whose house burns down four times. And it's about how the community respond to her. So the first time it's shock, horror, dismay. The second time it's efficient, shock, horror, dismay. The third time it's kind of like, what's going on here this is yeah this is weird. once is unfortunate twice is uh very unfortunate three, yeah, three, three times, times is yeah, a scam. Bit, yeah and then by the fourth fire it's kind of suggested maybe that she doesn't get any support or any help and you don't you're not quite sure what happens to her in the end but it was a story really about um how communities respond to people that are experiencing violence particularly domestic violence and how supporting someone who's going through that can be really difficult but also incredibly boring incredibly monotonous incredibly frustrating for the people around the for the sufferer. people around the sufferer yeah. and um house fire is a funny one because lo a lot of my very right on friends were like oh by the third fire i thought it was her and you're like no it wasn't her like you know and then they they they're, they're having to question themselves why do i think this oh i think this because this is what we're trained to think about people who experience a lot of trauma we're trained to think they're liars so the, so the fire is representative of the, the trauma going on in this person's life yeah yeah exactly and how people will gather around the person yeah you know, and that support i suppose mechanism gets less and less yeah, and less it totally wanes it, it totally wanes because you say people get bored and they get worn out and they've got their own problems yeah exactly and how long do you tell someone to sort something out and watch them not do it like it's really frustrating working and being around people that are suffering violence like it's it's a really complex thing and i think we i think the fact that on the particularly on the kind of political left we only want to talk about the good things we do to support each other we don't really talk about all the ways it doesn't work <laughs> because it feels too disheartening to be like, this isn't working. Well, that's the same across all spectrums of politics, yeah. isn't it? Where people only want to talk about the good, yeah. the benefits of it. What I thought was interesting was the way you actually put that piece together with all the different um, TV screens, screens, TV screens and flat screens and old sort of yeah. screens from like the 70s. And yeah. they were all showing different elements of the fire going on at the same time. So she's got this rage going going on in her life all the yeah, time. Yeah, and it's supposed to be a bit kind of, it's not supposed to be like era specific. It's supposed to kind of touch on these very archaic storytelling tropes. Like I, I really like stuff that's cliche because I'm interested in what it is in a person that makes us all relate to this like very, <laughs> these cliches and these tropes and how do we recognize these metaphors for things. Um, but this is, it was really nice because the first time it was shown was in Weissing Gallery in Cambridge. And it was the first, House Fire is the first piece I've ever made that has stuff. That's not just me by myself. Props. So it's the first time that okay. it was an installation that I would not always perform in. And now it's on show in France and it's even bigger in France. It's very exciting. So it's being done without your presence? I your flew over to perform. Uh -huh. So I did two performances and I gave a lecture. I think I saw you on Instagram. And yeah, on it was really strange. I got protested. Did you? Yeah, by some far right nationalists in France. <laughs> Absolutely balmy. What did they have against you? I haven't got a clue. I don't speak any French. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently they were furious at me. I was wearing a very big anti-fascist t-shirt. Oh, right. I don't think that went down very well. They were doing a lot of shouting Brexit, which I didn't, I don't think I looked like a Brexiter. So that got taken over to France? Yep, that's in France at the moment um, with a French translation. 
how does it perform with you being here and the set being over there? So there's a main TV in the centre that has subtitles on as if you're watching a film. Right. And then you can just kind of follow it along right. if you wanted to. So it's there, you filmed on one of the screens there? It's just so. subtitles along the bottom of a, of a, so of a not, house. So not you with a voiceover? It's not me there. with a voiceover. And okay. there's a printed out translation as well that okay. people can take. That's really good. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it felt like a very important piece. Uh-huh. What else have you been working on recently? Um, well, I just put out a piece which was like a Rihanna, how to describe it. Basically, I got an email from Show Studio, which is Nick Knight's fashion house thing. Uh, they were doing like a queer takeover and they asked me to do a performance. And I've been working on this piece where I've been singing Stay by Rihanna, which is um, a really like amazing breakup pop song, like proper heart wrencher. Uh, with an incredible music video and just some some lines that really set me off thinking about how domestic violence is a really big part of pop culture and very romanticized and obviously Rihanna and Chris Brown had a very abusive very publicly documented abusive relationship and Stay the song is very much about that so there's like a cover of me singing that and some text um, that happens in it. So it's you, in effect, I, th- I had a quick look at it. You, yeah. It's you, very raw, sitting there yeah. in a chair on your own. Having a beer, singing a- 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 Having a beer, s- s- singing to Rihanna <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a little hi-fi system there. Yeah. And then you can see you, you gradually sort of internalising the, the, the lyrics and then yeah. start gradually singing, getting more and more. Yeah, and then there's a little poem at the end, or there's a little bit of text. And then it goes back into the song. Um, it was really cathartic to work on. I don't really like, I have to do a lot of thinking about how draining it is to be a performance artist. When I was doing poetry, the main reason I stopped was because every time I was doing like three shows a week and pouring my heart out. And then every time you do that, 10 people want to come and tell you about the trauma they've been through. And obviously you want to support that. But I'm not a care worker and I don't really have the capacity to deal with everyone's trauma. Yeah, that's interesting. So that was kind of one of the main things about House Fire. I was like, how do I talk about this stuff and not actually just be like, this is explicitly what happened to me. And Rihanna is a, the Rihanna piece is another look at that. Like how how is there already systems in place that are talking about this in a really generic way? What are these languages where if you need to find it, it's it's there? Like that song is like, if you've been through domestic violence, that song is so obviously about that. But if you haven't, it might just be about your ex, you know? And I'm interested in those no, spaces at the moment. I'm interested by the point you, you say that if you're, do, you're doing this sort of art form where you're exposing yourself publicly, that people come up to you and expect you almost to be like um, the person to to help them with, with, their own, with their own personal problems. Absolutely. I get, I get so many emails all the time so you become a bit of a role model for them don't you yeah but also i think it's i think it can be it's a dangerous line to walk because i think people assume that if you're making work about violence or trauma it's because you're over it and actually i'm not i'm still very much in it and i'm still really feeling it and so i'm not like the expert and i think people sometimes think i am i think it's fair enough for you to respond that way to say to people this is just me putting out you know how i'm feeling right now yeah i've been feeling in the past i'm not the person to talk to about with respect, yeah. <laughs> I'm not the person to, to assist you with what's going on in your life, but yeah. I can signpost you to, you know, other yeah, places. Yeah, I do my best with it, you know, like I'm never going to let someone, I would never turn someone away, but I have to be quite firm and be like, I'm, this isn't, this isn't a counselling service, unfortunately. And also because I work in the Marquis of Granby, which is just up the road, which is the pub opposite Goldsmiths Uni. So a lot of students obviously will see my work 
and then see me pouring a pint and then I get the like unofficial crits where they come in and they're like I want to talk to you about this thing I'm making and I'm like well I'm not being paid loads of money like your tutors are so <laughs> I don't want to talk to you about it <laughs> like obviously I want to be supportive and be like that's cool but I'm actually the assumption that even though when I'm working I can like stop everything to to be like let's talk for 20 minutes about your artwork sure it's very strange it is odd isn't it? I never thought of it in those terms but that's that is interesting and also, I think from a point of view, from relaxing and doing what you what you like to do, I think you're in a, a punk rock band as yeah, well. Yeah, I'm in two bands. I'm in one band called Millicent Girlfriend. Um, we just put our EP out. It's me and my best friend, Caitlin, and her brother. And being in a band is absolutely amazing. Like, there was like a month, quit date, left a really horrible boyfriend, started a punk band, and everything just started to like realize. Oh, it's as recent as that? Yeah, I thought yeah. you'd been going for a while. No, we've probably been, no, not that not that long, which is very quick, writers. So where did you learn to play? Was that something you've been doing since school? Um, there was always a guitar in my house. Uh, I would say I'm not very good, but um, I really like, I like being on stage. And when I stopped doing poetry, I wanted to find other ways to still perform. And being in a band's wicked because there's no, there's no pressure in the way that there is if you're a solo act. Yeah. Like being a band, being in a band, you can just all laugh, laugh. And, and if you're good mates as well, you just. Exactly. And it's really nice to collaborate. I've never been a collaborator. So it's all your own stuff you're performing. Yeah, all our own stuff. And then I'm in another band called the PTA. <laughs> and we just, uh, we've, yeah, we haven't quite worked out our genre yet, but we we're doing some anti-fascist. We wanted to be an anti-fascist toy band, but I can't play the drums quick enough. So we're having to be, <laughs> having to be anti-fascist something else. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but why, why punk? Is it just, is that a culture that appeals to you? Yeah, I was really, really, when I was growing up, I always listened to, hardcore and was really into like proper proper hardcore punk shows and then I kind of fell off of it a bit and then recently it's all kind of come back into my life and in in London in the activist scene a lot of people are also in the kind of DIY punk scene there's a lot of crossover or like go to the queer clubs and like watch these punk bands and I I've got really back into going to shows again now so it feels feels all very timely I must say yeah it's funny because punk was in my youth was you know in the 70s was when I was growing up punk was yeah. just coming to the fore and so I, I lived and grew, grew up with that in the background it's like the background music you know to my, yeah. to my youth in many respects and shows how old I am <laughs> giving the game away now but it's never really gone away punk has it it's always no. been there as an underground sort of yeah. culture for sure and also like I'm I mean I'm in my hangover clothes today but I'm normally dressed quite smart skinhead what, what are your what are your hangover just clothes really you got, ripped jeans you got a hoodie and, tall and a jeans world's on. biggest hoodie <laughs> but I'm normally kind of braces and top button quite okay, smart you've got your dms no, do you know what? Your... I don't wear DMs. Don't wear my mum tells me off about You're not this. a real punk well this is the thing I just find them deeply uncomfortable yeah so I just wear vans, but I've like just did a, a photo shoot for a company called Brutus with two of my best friends that we all are uh, kind of dressed very skinhead. And we were talking a lot about punk and skin and what it means at the moment to be a skinhead because obviously like skinhead came from from the, the family and unity of like white working class and Windrush babies and like this total two-tone amalgamation of culture and then got co-opted as everything does by far right and straight white dudes trashing the scene and now there's this resurgence of people trying to kind of reclaim that culture and it feels like a very difficult time because I feel like I look militantly anti-fascist when I'm in a proper skinhead outfit but someone else might feel very differently we'll see about you that. as the complete opposite of that. Yeah, yeah and that's that's quite hard how all good subcultures become co-opted yeah everything gets co-opted and yeah. crossovered eventually yeah it's sad people 
nick other people's ideas, nick other people's cultures, take them for what they for their benefit they want to put them to. Yeah, that's, definitely. That's, that's the way it goes. So what what have you got planned for the future then? What's what's going well, on? Well, I have to say I'm in a bit of a limbo at the moment. I'm waiting to hear back from Arts Council about a big application I put in um to travel to different towns in the UK and research and explore how art, artists and activists in the areas are working together or, or why they're not working together and how do we build those connections so hopefully i'll get that probably won't but it would be nice when and do you hear on that I'll, I'll hear probably in two weeks it takes eight weeks which is such a long time to not know whether you're going to have work for the next six months or not and also I'm, I'm writing a play at the moment i'm writing a radio play so i'm away to cambridge next month for two and a half weeks to start thinking about it and the play is about a woman who turns into a radio and it's about when I had a psychotic break a few years ago and started to hear voices mm-hmm. and so it's kind of Kafkaesque like she wakes up one day and she realizes she's transmitting noises that aren't her and she's realizing that she's slowly like turning into a, a radio um, but I'm really looking forward to it because it's going to be like kind of grunge and punk. And Is I'm this gonna... a commission piece or you're doing it with the hope to get it? Um, so the research the research bit's all funded and then I guess each stage I'll have to reapply for some more cash. Sure. But the plan is to just commission lots of bands to write little tiny snippets for it of these different moments. So it feels really big and it feels like um, it's very exciting for me to to work on something completely out of my comfort zone. Brilliant. Yeah. Good, good for you. Well, I, I hope that works out. <laughs> Same. That's excellent. So let's just wrap up then. Yeah. Um, how can people find you or find out about you or get in touch with you? I'm honestly unashamedly all over the internet yes. you can follow me on instagram it's at live winter l-i-v-w-y-n-t-e-r my twitter is the same i have a website it's not very updated you can email me i'm on facebook smoke signals i'll give you my number <laughs> like i'm at the pub it's fine i'm everywhere <laughs> uh, and your website is i don't know have you got you don't that? know what your website is just live winter artist i don't know i printed it out but it hasn't hasn't come out i think, I th- I think it is you know what if you google me honestly the first 12 yeah. pages of me I, I can vouch for that there's yeah. plenty on live out there you, you'll get <laughs> directed straight to her website or any of the articles or the guardian article yeah and you'll, you'll also there. see which i think is probably very uh, important to read is live's full resignation letter um, which uh, will give you a, a deeper insight into, yeah. into live as well so it just remains for me to thank you very much for turning thank up. Thank you for having I'm, me. Uh, I'm delighted that you, you made it. <laughs> yeah. We finally, finally got, uh, got it together. So thank you very much, Liv. <laughs> That's okay. And best of luck with all you do. Thanks very much.